0: I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 5. In a moment we'll begin reading verses 22 through chapter 7, verse 7. And as you turn there, I was reminded of uh, another verse from 1 Samuel 3, verse 21, that says this. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. How did the Lord reveal himself? By the word of the Lord. That's how God reveals himself. That's why we go back to the word. Time and time and time again, because we believe it's the Word of the Lord, and it's through the Word of the Lord that God has revealed Himself. It's why we come together. So with that in mind, would you stand with me as we read Exodus 5, beginning in verse 22, going all the way through Exodus 7, 7. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jochin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the sons of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to, the, to their generations Gershon, Koath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimai by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, Uziel, the years of the life of Koath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mahli, and Mushi, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. These are the sons of Ishar, Korah, Nepheg, Zikri. the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife, Elishabah, the daughter of Abinadab, and the sister of Nashon, And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasath. These are the clans of the Korites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phinehas, These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord behold I am of uncircumcised lips how will Pharaoh listen to me The Lord said to Moses see I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet you shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt Pharaoh will not listen to you then I will lay my hand on Egypt and will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. Do all of this by your word and by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you know the Lord? Or to put it another way, do you know God? The answer to that question could be very clear cut. You could say, I do not know the Lord. I do not know God. If that is your answer that you would say, I do not know the Lord, let me tell you this morning, you are in the right place. I hope and pray that today you would come to know the Lord. I pray that you would listen carefully so that you might hear the call of salvation. You might hear the call of God upon your life to turn from your sin and to know Him. There is no one greater, no one better that you can know. To know Him is to have eternal life. There might be others who say, without reservation or without second thought. Yes, I know the Lord. It might even seem like a strange question to you. Of course I know the Lord. What kind of question is that? But let us inquire a little bit further. If you would answer, yes, I know the Lord, how do you know that you know Him? Is it because you're able to pass a test? Is it because you've gone to church all of your life? Is it because of all of the spiritual activities that you've done? What evidence, what evidence would you present to say this is how I know that I know the Lord? This is how I can prove that I know God. We must be cautious, as J.I. Packer points out in his book, Knowing God, when he says this, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of Him. One can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. There is a difference between knowing God And merely knowing about God. And I fear that too many might be content merely with knowing about God, but never really knowing God. If you read the epistle of 1 John, John says there a few times, if anyone says, I know him, if anyone says, I know God, what is the apostle John saying he's saying there will be those who will make the claim i know him but John says that claim is not backed up by the way that they live their lives in fact oftentimes in 1 John it's it's not by it's not backed up by their love for one another knowing about God without knowing God is a most dangerous deception, and the deception is this: the deception is dead orthodoxy. What is that? Well, what is orthodoxy? Orthodoxy. If we split that word up, doxy, teaching, or uh, I'm sorry, it's it's right, right? Uh, I'm sorry, orthodoxy. It's right teaching, right teaching. So we can have right teaching, we can have orthodoxy, but it could be dead. There's nothing there. There's no life in it. What is that like, dead orthodoxy? It's being able to divine faith without ever living by faith. It's... it's Singing about God's amazing grace without ever being amazed by God's grace or having received God's grace. It is being able to explain God's great love without ever having this love affected you, and so that you would then love the way that God's love. It is saying to God, Alone be the glory, without ever giving God the glory. And this is the danger that lies with some. That they know about God, but they've never really known God. And this is so dangerous because eternity hangs in the balance. Eternal life or eternal destruction. Knowing the Lord is so important because where you will spend eternity depends on whether you know Him or not. We are creatures who are made to know God. The greatest aim of anyone's life is that they can know God. What is the assurance of eternal life? What is your assurance of eternal life? That you know God. Jesus says this in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God is living in relationship with, with God. Knowing God floods one's life with faith, joy, contentment, trust, hope, love, and peace. Knowing God inflames our affections towards God. It renews our minds in God and it directs our will to do God's will. In short, knowing God is what makes us glorify. knowing God is what motivates us to worship God how is it possible though for you to have this kind of relationship how is it possible for you to know God in this fashion is it because you know all of the steps to take to get to God is it because you've got God figured out Is it because of your smarts or your intelligence that you know God? No. The only way that you are able to know God is because the Lord has made himself known. He has revealed himself, revealed to us all that we need so that we can then know him. And this is a major theme in the book of Exodus. The Lord is making himself known known to his people. He is making his name known. He is making his attributes known. He is making himself known through his works. We desperately desperately need the Lord to make himself known because if he doesn't make himself known, we will get him wrong and we will never truly know him. And this is exactly what happens when people seek to know the Lord apart from His Word. When they do that, when they say, I think I can know God, but I don't need the Bible to know God, something happens. They seek to know a God of their own making, a God of their own choosing, a God that makes sense to them, a God that fits into their little box, a God, if truth be told, who looks a lot like them. They have made a God after their own image rather than seeing that they are made in the image of the one true God and seeking Him who has revealed Himself to mankind. And so these verses this morning from Exodus confront us with who the Lord is and who he makes himself, uh, how He makes Himself known to us. And so if we want to truly know God, we have to be willing to accept and believe how the Lord God has made himself known to us. And so we come to these verses asking, how does the Lord make himself known? And it's revealed in three ways. And I'm not going to get through them all. Number one, you can follow along in your outline if that's helpful. It's there in your bulletin. Number one, the Lord makes himself known through the salvation of his people. The Lord makes himself known through the salvation of his people. We come to these verses in verse 22 of chapter 5 in the middle of the blame game. Have you ever played that game before, the blame game? Are you an expert at the blame game? you know it don't you whatever goes on in your life that is hard or difficult or something that happens that you don't like or something goes wrong what do you do? you blame someone else and if we're honest we like to play the blame game because in the blame game we're never wrong it's always someone else's fault And if you're really good at it, you always win. The blame game is happening here at the end of chapter 5. And the Israel foremen have just been beaten by their Egyptian taskmasters for not making their quota of bricks. These same foremen went before Pharaoh. They cry out to him, we are your servants, we are your servants. They plead their case before Pharaoh. They ask for mercy before Pharaoh, but what do they get? They get no mercy from Pharaoh. And they come out and they blame Moses and Aaron the Lord judge you Moses and Aaron for what you've done to us we stink before Pharaoh because of you only harsher treatment has come upon us Moses and Aaron you've made it so that the Egyptians want to kill us you have put a sword in their hand it's all your fault but as you know in the blame game the buck does not just get passed once It keeps going. So now we come to Moses who turns to the Lord or returns to the Lord and seeks to pass the blame on to God. Lord, why have you done evil? It's all your fault, God, in sending me. Things have only gotten worse. Pharaoh continues to Commit evil against the people. You haven't done anything at all, God. No deliverance, no salvation, nothing whatsoever. It's all your fault, God. And it appears that Moses' accusation puts God in alliance with Pharaoh. Here Moses says, God, you're doing evil to the people, and Pharaoh's doing evil to the people. Are you working in cahoots? Are you working together? The Lord and Pharaoh are not working together. They are opposed to one another. God is not working for evil. What is God doing? God is working all things together for good, even in this moment, even though Moses can't see it. Are we ever able to recognize that? Are we ever able to recognize in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the hardship, in the midst of the trials, and the tribulations, when we would want... To say, God, why are you doing all of this evil that God is actually working for good in your life? Makes me think of Joseph. Remember Joseph and his brothers? They sell Joseph into slavery. Remember, Joseph has this this dream. Basically, the dream is, brothers, you all are going to bow down to me. And Imagine if your brother or your sister said that to you. Yeah, right. We got an idea. We'll sell him into slavery. So they sell Joseph into slavery. He goes to Egypt. He goes through much hardship there in Egypt, but eventually he rises in Egypt, has a great prominence, is overseen over much of the land, particularly as they go through a famine and a drought. He is there divvying out what the people get, right? The, The provisions that they get. And so... Joseph's brothers, they come back to Egypt, right? And eventually, it's made known to them that he is their brother. And there's great joy. But then something happens. Their father, Jacob, dies. And then the brothers are worried. Joseph, what are you going to do to us? And then... Joseph says this to his brothers in Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. God is good in the midst of that evil. What about Romans 8, 28? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Moses still could not see clearly that God had a plan. God was going to bring about something good. God was going to be glorified in the end. God was in fact orchestrating everything for the good of his People, The Lord is sovereign, and if the Lord is sovereign, there is no way that you can blame him. He knows what he is doing, and he is doing it all according to his plan, in his time, and and in his way. What is it? What is it in your life that you are blaming God for? What is it in your life that's saying, God, I wish that it was different. I wish that you hadn't done this. This is bad. I don't like it. What is it in your life? How is it that you believe God has wronged you? What do you do when tragedy and hardship strike? Do you blame God? Or do you trust God? Do you run to Him? Or do you think that He is never there when you really need Him? Are you willing to see that God in His infinite wisdom is presiding in truth and justice over everything? Are you willing to say that whatever my God ordains is right? The Bible talks about God being our portion. And being our portion, He is our delight, and the Bible says He is a present portion. He is with us now in the present, helping us, sustaining us, there for us, for our good. Do you know that God is your present portion, even now, even today? Whatever hardship, whatever tribulation that you are experiencing now or have ever experienced, are you able to see God means it to be for my good, Or do you do what Moses did? God, you have not delivered your people at all. God, what are you doing? Are you impatient when it appears that God's deliverance has failed? Would you complain when his deliverance does not happen when you want it to? Just because the Israelites had not experienced instantaneous deliverance, does it mean that God had failed? No, it was according to God's purpose to make himself known and so that his deliverance would shine forth his greatness even more, so that His glory would be undeniable as the glory that is supreme over everything and over everyone. It's the Lord then who comes back to Moses and speaks to Moses after such an accusation. Think about it. How would you respond if someone put the blame on you? God speaks to Moses with great patience and reassurance the Lord says that Moses will see at this moment Moses was living by sight not by faith and so God answers Moses you will see something something that is truly amazing and powerful and awesome and it's what God would do to Pharaoh and then all of the attention gets taken off of Moses, and gets put upon God where it rightfully belongs. You see that here in these verses at the beginning of verse or chapter 6, verse 1. For with a strong hand He will send them out, and with a strong hand He will drive them out. I think this strong hand here is God's hand. It's God's strong hand that is causing Pharaoh to do what he is about to do. It's God's strong hand that is powerful. His power is greater than Pharaoh's power. What is Pharaoh's hand? What is Pharaoh able to do? Pharaoh is able to do nothing in comparison to what God is able to do. And so it's God's power that will prevail and it's by the Lord's power that he is orchestrating everything that is about to take place. And God makes a proclamation of His sovereign power with this statement, I am the Lord. You see that there in verse 2? God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. He is the one who is the self-existent one, the all-sufficient one, the one who is able to do more than we could ever ask or even think. He is the great I am and there is no other. There is no one who can compare to the Lord. And so then, to solidify this statement, God tells us He is Yahweh, the God of the past, the present, and the future. And so He begins with the past. He goes all the way back to the patriarch, doesn't He? Verse 3, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That's how God made Himself known to the patriarchs as God Almighty. Maybe you've heard of this name before, it's El Shaddai. And we see this title in the book of Genesis. Genesis 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. There it is. God appears to Abram and says, I am God Almighty, I am El Shaddai. But he also does this before Jacob, Genesis 28, verses 2 and 3. God says to Jacob, Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. There it is again. God Almighty is going to bless you. He's going to multiply you. And then Jacob even recounts that to his son Joseph in Genesis 48, 3 and 4. He says this God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and make you a company of peoples and will give you this land, give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Here it is, God Almighty, this title being made known to the patriarchs over and over and over again. El Shaddai, El Shaddai. And notice there, each time, it's surrounding this multiplication of the people of God. Why did Abraham and all of the other patriarchs need to know that God was all-powerful? Why did they need to know that God was almighty? Because they were going to start out very slow. They were going to start out in a very minimal fashion. They were going to start out in weakness and in hardship. But God was telling them, I am more powerful. I can do what you cannot do in and of yourselves. I can make people multiply. You can't even do that. And so we had to tell them, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I can do what you cannot do for yourself." But what does God say here to Moses? But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So God is saying, by my name, the Lord. So here is this, Proper noun, Yahweh, by the name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I made myself known to them as God Almighty, as El Shaddai, but I did not make myself known to them as Yahweh. What are we to do with this? Especially when we come to Genesis 4.26. There it says, to Seth also a son was born and he called his name Enosh, at that time people began to call on the name of Yahweh, on the name of the Lord. So wait a second, wait a second, God. Way back in Genesis 4, it says there that people called on the name of Yahweh. How can you say now that I didn't tell people my name, Yahweh? Or let's take another example, Genesis fifteen seven. God speaks to Abram and says, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. God says there directly, I am Yahweh. He says that specifically to Abram. He declares that he is the Lord. And so there's other examples we could go to in Genesis as well, but how do we reconcile this now with Exodus 6, verse 3, when God says, but by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. Well, first we know that God's word never contradicts. The patriarchs would have known the name Yahweh. But through the events of the Exodus, God's name Yahweh is about to be given unknown meaning and significance. What God is saying is He's saying there's going to be a way that you're going to know me now through these events of the Exodus that the patriarchs did not know. There is this progressive revelation that's going to happen. You are going to see things. You are going to experience things that are going to be different than what the patriarchs even known, have ever known. In fact, they're going to see more promises fulfilled. Did the patriarchs see promises fulfilled? Yes, they saw some. But you even think about that promise of them going back and possessing the land. The patriarchs did not see that, yet these generations that are about to come from the nation of Israel will see this promise of them going back and possessing the land, the promised land. And how God was going to bring that about. And so they are under, to understand the name of God, Yahweh, more fully through these events of the Exodus. And the mean of Yahweh's name would even be more on display through the events that were about to be done to Pharaoh and to all the Egyptians. And the patriarchs here knew that God was a covenant-making God. That's verse 4, right? I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And so God is also a covenant-keeping God. He's making promises and He's keeping His promises and they're going to come to pass. And it's based upon this covenant that He is now coming to the people. He's saying, I have a relationship with the patriarchs so, I have a relationship with you. I'm going to keep my promises, even to the Israelites who are now slaves in Egypt. And so he says, I am the Lord, and he looks to the past. He says, Remember the patriarchs. Remember how I revealed myself to them. Remember the covenant that I made with those patriarchs. Everything I'm about to do is based on those past actions that I took, but now I also remember the present. I have heard the people's groaning. I've remembered the covenant that I've made. I will not forget my people, says God. I will remember them in such a way that I will think about them intentionally and I will act toward them in such a way that shows them my love and my care and my concern and my grace. God in the present is coming to his people to act upon his covenant that he had previously made. God showing his faithfulness. God showing his commitment to his people in the present. He would come to save them, and then it brings us to this future commitment as well. So we've seen the past there in verses 2 and 3 and 4. We've seen the present in verse 5 of chapter 6, and now we see the future in verses 6 through 8. And Just highlight these verses here for a moment. So look at verses 6 through 8. Notice at the very beginning how God starts, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and then look at the very end of verse 8. How does God end? I am the Lord. So there, at the very beginning and the very end, is God making this declaration, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and Then he's going to sandwich in between all of this future perspective. And so what is God saying? He's saying, I want you to know who Yahweh is. You have to look no further than to what I am about to do. This is how you can be assured of who I am because these are my actions. This is what I will do. And when it happens, it will be undeniable that I did it. You won't be able to attribute it to happenstance or to coincidence it will not leave a question mark. When all of this happens, you will say, God did this. And you can hear the certainty with which the Lord speaks here. Do you hear it? He says over and over again, I will, I will, I will. Seven times, God says, I will. Why does God say, I will, seven times? Because this is his divine action that he is about to take. He is saying, I alone can do this because I alone am Yahweh. I alone am the Lord. I alone am God. And I wonder if if we ever lose perspective of this. I wonder if we're ever in danger of falling into a different line of thinking or a different religion. Because there are those out there who would say to you, you can, you can, you can. And you start thinking, I can, I can, I can. And then what happens? You come to the end of your rope, And you realize, I can't. And what do you do when you realize you can't? What do you do when you realize that all of this while you've been telling yourself, I can, I can, I can, and all of a sudden, you can't? What are you left with? It sounds nice to our ears. We want to hear that we can, right? I mean, motivational speakers, that's what they tell us. You can, you can, you can do it, you can do it. Nike tells us that. Just do it. What is the perspective that we as God's people need? We don't need to tell ourselves, I can, I can, I can. We need to hear God say, I will, I will, I will, I will. Because when you realize that you cannot do it, you need someone who can do it, and God alone can do it. And what alone can God do? God alone can save. God alone can rescue you. God alone can call you out of your sin and out of your misery. God alone can give you eternal life. You cannot give that to yourself. And so I wonder, when you are struggling, in the midst of difficulty and hardship, when you've been trying to tell yourself, I can, I can, I can, and you realize you can't, will you go to the Lord who says, I will, I will, I will. And as God comes to us and says, I will, he tells us that he is the Lord in three ways. First, he says, I am Yahweh who redeems. I am Yahweh who redeems. I will bring these people out of this land. I will deliver them. I will save them. I will redeem them. Yahweh's work is a saving work. It's a rescuing work. The Israelites could not bring themselves out. They couldn't deliver themselves. They couldn't redeem themselves. And so we are told by God with confidence that God's work is a redeeming work. Just like the work of a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer in the Bible has this particular and unique responsibility to take care of his family. If there is a family member who is dealing with hardship or trials, or particularly that of slavery, it's their responsibility to care for that person, to bring them out of their slavery. To care for them and take care of them so that they do not have to go into slavery. And so there is this close bond, this relationship, this responsibility that they have to care for that one. And so this is what God does for his people, doesn't it? Isn't it? He says, I care about you. I'm not going to let slavery destroy you or harm you. I'm going to bring you out of your slavery. My relationship is so close with you, such a close bond, that I cannot let you go on in your slavery anymore. So God says, I will call you out. I will redeem you. I will bring you out of your slavery. But there's something else as well that the Redeemer has to do the Redeemer has to pay a price. The Redeemer has to pay a price for those whom He will redeem. And what is God saying here to His people? He is saying, I will pay the price to redeem my people. And He says, I will redeem the price no matter what the cost. Yahweh is a God who redeems his people. Who pays the price that they could not pay to free themselves. It's the kind of redeemer that we need. You ever think, God doesn't say to the Israelites, come on out, just get yourselves out of Egypt. Why don't you just pack up your bags and leave? Why don't you gather an army together? You're so great, you're so mighty, why don't you just do that? God says, no, I am going to deliver you. I am going to redeem you. I am going to save you. You cannot save yourselves. You cannot redeem yourselves. You cannot pay that price that is required. I will pay the price required. I will do it all. So Yahweh is the Redeemer. But second, Yahweh is also the Lord of relationship. This is verse 7. He uses covenantal relationship language here. You see this, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. This is a bond that's built upon God's commitment and God's faithfulness. It is a covenant built on what God does to keep it together. How God ensures that it will last is a relationship that demonstrates His steadfast love and care. And so God will continue to use this kind of language throughout the Bible. You are my people, and I am your God. Like in Jeremiah 31, he says about the new covenant, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Hear that relationship language there, even in the new covenant. I am their God, they are my people. In fact, let's just fast forward all the way to the very end of the Bible. Revelation 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And what? And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. We will dwell with the Lord forever in this close bond relationship. And so he is making this promise to the Israelites. He's saying, I am going to have this close relationship with you, so much so that I'm going to live among you. The holy God is going to live and dwell among his people. They're going to be brought back together. They're going to know fellowship. They're going to know love. They're going to know peace. They're going to know everything that they've ever wanted to know when they are with God again. So that's what he says here in this relationship. How close it is and how good it is to know that we as sinful people can know God and be in relationship with him. But then finally, this is a Yahweh of rest. God promises to bring them into the land of Canaan, the promised land. The land of the sojournings of their patriarchs. He will give them this place, this land, and he will dwell with them there. And it's there that they are supposed to know peace and rest. In fact, that's a big problem later on in Exodus. The people rebel against God. They sin against God. They build a golden calf. And that generation, God says, because of your disobedience, you shall not enter my rest. Here is God making this promise. I am going to bring rest to you. I'm going to bring rest to you in this place where I am bringing you into, this land that I promised I will give it to you for a possession. I will bring you into this land that I swore to give Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so Yahweh is the Lord of redemption. He is the Lord of relationship. And He is the Lord of rest. And these future promises made by Yahweh is how he is making himself known, making himself known through salvation. And all of this finds its culmination in Christ, does it not? Christ is our Redeemer. He is our Deliverer. He is our Savior. He is the one who brings us out of our slavery to sin, and he is the one who sets us free. God is saying here to us, I am the great Emancipator. I am the great Freer of the people, the great Liberator. And how does he do that? supremely, He does it through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who redeems us. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our of sins. Christ has paid our redemption price with his own blood so that we might be forgiven and rescued from the, from the judgment that we deserved because of our sin. And Christ is how we now have a relationship with God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You want to know God? You have to know Jesus Christ. You have to put your faith and trust in him and in him alone to save you and rescue you from your sins. And it's in Christ that we find ultimate rest. Hear these words of Christ. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. Today, if you hear his heart, do not, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart, but believe in him, listen to him, trust him, come to him. The Lord is making himself known through his salvation. The Lord makes himself known through the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do not be like the Israelites in verse 9. What did they do? They did not listen to Moses because of their broken, broken spirit and their harsh slavery. Oh, what an awful and dreadful state they were in so awful and so dreadful that they were deaf to the promises of God. They did not hear and they would not listen to how God was making himself known through salvation. Have you turned a deaf ear? Would you be so unmoved by the Lord making himself known through salvation that comes to you only through His Son, Jesus Christ, that you would sink into despair because of your circumstances, because of the tragedy, because of the disaster that has struck you, because you are discouraged by your past? Would you be downcast because of your own sin that seems inescapable, too big, too powerful, too strong, too overwhelming to be overcome? There is good news for you today. The Lord can save you. He can lift you out of your misery and despair that you know because of your sin. He can redeem you from whatever you have done, whatever you have known, whatever you have gone through. He can heal. He can forgive. And He makes Himself known so that you can know Him and so know salvation and so know His glory and so then know eternal life. Do not be like the Israelites who turned the deaf ear to His promises. Listen to these promises. Know this, Lord, of redemption and relationship and rest. And trust Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that we can hear Your Word this morning. I pray that we would have ears to hear what Your Spirit says to this, Your church. And Father, I pray that if there is any here today who would need to hear this word of salvation and so be saved, that they would hear it. And that they would be made free from their bondage to sin and to death. That they would be liberated. And that they would know you, the only true God. The one who gives life and eternal life all who trust in Jesus Christ and so I pray Father that your work will continue to work in us who do know you that we would not forget you who have made yourself known that we would not be deaf even now to your promises but that your promises would be working in us in the midst of whatever we are going through knowing that you are working all things together for good for those who love you those who are called according to your purpose. And so, Lord, we pray you would continue to be our source of strength and our rock of refuge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.